Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for the program. Thank you for joining us today. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a 118-year-old, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any views expressed are those of the speakers. The Commonwealth Club is producing hundreds of programs a year, even during the pandemic. Head over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for all upcoming programs, plus podcasts and video from past events. We would like to thank Open House San Francisco for putting together today's panel. Now, if you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat box to submit questions for our special guest today. I'll be back toward the end of the program and we'll share those questions um, with our esteemed panel. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us today for our conversation on pronouns provision. A recent court ruling overturned a component of the LGBTQ long-term care facility residence's Bill of Rights, which allows nursing home staff the permissions to misgender residents under the protection of freedom of speech. The component is noted as the pronouns provision, which originally banned staff in nursing homes um, from willfully misgendering residents. It's kind of shocking that this is the outcome, this is the decision, but we'll, we'll discuss it. And we've got a great panel for you. And so let me introduce you to our panel. And by the way, thank you to Open House for partnering with us and helping us put this panel together. We've got Eric Carlson, who's the directing attorney for Justice and Aging and also author of Long-Term Care Advocacy and 25 Common Nursing Home Problems and How to Resolve Them. We have Rochelle Sloda, who's the author of Stray Son and Captive Market, Commercial Kidnapping Stories from Nigeria, and Dr. Kathleen Sullivan, who's the Executive Director of Open House. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Why don't we start with Eric and uh, everyone else who wants to chime in, but understanding how this how this came to be, maybe even starting with you know, who were the parties of the lawsuit that you know, led to this court case? Eric? This is a, a challenge brought against the, the state law. By a nonprofit organization called Taking Offense, so there was there was no prosecution or enforcement under the law. It was a preemptive case against the state, and the um, the reason why the, these folks were able to um, show up in court to have standing in legal terms were the fact that they paid taxes in the state of California. So it's a it's an organization that um, with members that provided that pay taxes in the state of California and that that's their standing and able to, um, and, um, it allows them to, to appear in front of the, uh, in front of the state court to challenge this saying that the, these provisions are unconstitutional and should be struck down. Those were their arguments. Anyone want to add to Eric's response? Well, this is Kathleen. Thank you so much for having us today, Michelle. I, I think that's the, the legal, um, pathway, that got us to where we are. But I think that the underlying reason that this suit was brought about was purely discrimination against transgender elders and transgender people in the state of California. So I understand there's a legal pathway going forward, and Eric is so great at describing those, and he'll be such a great guide for us during this discussion. But the undercurrent certainly is part of the attack on 
not just transgender elders, although that's specifically what this attack is, but transgender residents of California. And I'm going to go, you know, back and forth with, uh, you know, yes, the legal conversation, and then also the personal and human, you know, conversation that we should have about this. But State Senator Scott Weiner had responded, you know, to the decision of this case, in which you know, he, he he really doubles down and really does a great job in talking about, you know, this isn't necessarily freedom of speech. I mean, when uh, members of our community are misgendered, that's harassment. And so I'd love for all of you uh, to share your thoughts on, you know, the responses. Go ahead, Rochelle. Michelle, I recognize the fingerprints on this on this action. I mean, as a transgender woman um, who has been um, on both sides of this issue, I've been a healthcare worker and, and I'm a transgender senior. Um, uh, I'm really familiar with these attacks. I mean, these attacks are coming from everywhere, left and right, most, you know, more in red states than blue states. But um, transgender people seem to be the object of the preposition lately. Absolutely. And Kathleen, I wanted uh, to get your thoughts also, you know, leading an organization like Open House that directly works with our transgender elders. I mean, talk to us about what Scott, or, or, I'm sorry, Senator Weiner had said that this isn't, this is harassment when, you know, our, our trans elders are being misgendered. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question and a great point by the Senator. Clearly, if someone is living in a nursing home, um, there's a degree of frailty associated with that. Um, and if you're living in a long-term care setting, it's generally because you don't feel like you can live on your own anymore independently. You need some additional assistance. And so targeting one member of that community who's transgender, uh, it certainly is harassment. And I think it goes a little bit beyond that. I actually think that it is harmful. And, you know, we have the LGBTQ resident bill of rights, but there's also just the bill of rights for residents in long-term care settings. And one is to be free of harassment. Um, I think that you have to just imagine what it would be like, you know, a lot of LGBT older adults, um, you know, keeping their sexual orientation or gender identity, um, uh, to themselves or to a small group of people is one way to protect themselves. But if you're in a nursing home and you need help with either transferring out of your bed or you need help with bathing or even eating or dressing, you no longer can hide who you are. The staff in that facility is very intimately aware of who you are and what gender your body is as opposed to what gender you present as. And the fact that this Third Circuit Court will allow for the harm to transgender elders who are in such a uh, precarious position, I think it's beyond harassment. It's it's pure harm to that person. And it could do physical harm by those residents no longer accepting assistance, but it can also do um, harm to someone's mental health as well as emotional health. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, personally, when Reading about this, I feel sick into my stomach because, you know, even if it's bullying, but bullying our seniors and our elders is incredibly gross to me. But let's talk about, you know, what laws are in place to protect 
our seniors right now, because I think, I think the general public, you know, probably doesn't really understand much about um, those specific laws. I think in our minds, culturally, or socially, we think that, yeah, all organizations, all health facilities, you know, provide great care uh, or try to provide great care for our seniors, our elders, our loved ones. And so, um, yes, all three of you, please answer. We can start with Eric. Yeah, so uh, we're talking about nursing facilities here, although the the LGBT Residence Bill of Rights covered other types of long-term care facilities as well. But just for clarity right now, we'll start with nursing facilities. These are the the facilities that people are probably familiar to referring to as nursing homes or convalescent hospitals, something of the type. And the laws actually are really good. Um, The the enforcement, right? The, the, The compliance is something else. But the law is set by federal law that applies throughout the country because it's tied to the nursing facilities acceptance of Medicaid and or Medicare money. So if you take federal money, which 90 plus facility, almost all of them do, then you got to comply with the, with the federal law. And the, um, the federal law has lots of strong protections on, on paper that um, the res, the care should be resident centered. That means that the residents preferences should be honored. It shouldn't just be based on what the nursing facility wants and what's easiest for the staff and what their standard operating procedures are. Instead, in recognition of the fact, like Kathleen suggested, that these are are people's homes. They're not just dropping by for a um, hospitalization of a couple of days, for example. They're living there. This is their home for weeks, months, years oftentimes. And because of that, the, the nursing facility should provide high quality care in a variety of different ways. The operative language is the highest practical level. So the facility has to provide care that allows a resident to get to the high, to, to attain or maintain the highest practical level in a variety of different aspects pertaining to um, physical rehabilitation, for example, or skin care or nutrition or activities or, or anything else. So the, the short of it is that the standards are, are solid and high. Kathleen, Rochelle, anything to add? Rochelle? I, I worked in a skilled nursing facility um, when I was much younger, working my way through um, college. And um, I, I, at the time, I was interested in death. I was studying death anxiety and doing research on it. And um, there were patients dying in the hospital all by themselves alone. And nobody, this didn't seem to bother anybody. And I made a pact with my charge nurse and would regularly, she would let me spend a big part of my shift with a patient. And I could sit there and hold the patient's hand and talk to them as they passed. And that's something, you know, taking care of a patient's physical needs without taking care of their heart isn't taking care of the patient. You know, and I can't imagine misgendering my patients. I mean, it's, it's, how is that healing? How does that help? Why? I think that's a really good point. If, I, if it's okay for me to just jump in for a moment, um, Michelle, 
I think I I just want to say that in California, there are a lot of great facilities doing a lot of great work. We partner um, with organizations like Atria, which is one of the largest um, providers of um, of uh, long-term care housing for older adults, and they do great work. And we still want to ensure that we have sort of a baseline of care and um, and thoughtfulness, like Rochelle was just pointing out. And I think that the, clearly the federal laws are very strong. I mean, you know, you have to have privacy, you have to have access to phones, you have to be able to have a private conversation. There's lots of different provisions, you know, no longer, you know, chemical or physical restraints. There's there's a whole host of um, provisions that actually help to protect people. And I think that what California did with um, the LGBTQ uh, Resident Bill of Rights was it was going one step further, which really was taking laws around protection in um, for the LGBTQ community um, in public accommodations and really seeing whether or not there was a way to marry that into long-term care so that we just all are on the same page that we need to train our staff how to work competently um, with LGBTQ older adults. And we need to make sure that we treat every Californian who's in a nursing home or in a lo- other long-term care setting with the respect and dignity that they deserve. Great points, everyone. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and I love what you had to say, Kathleen, because the second question to that was going to be, you know, listening to Eric and uh, uh, talking about those strong protections, talking about the fact that we we have an LGBTQ, you know, residence's Bill of Rights in place. Um, why do you think that we, we see issues right in nursing homes? And my guess is that you, you brought it up. I mean, sometimes it could be a lack of education. So that's what I was going to ask. Is it that, do we need, uh, I heard, I heard training, but you know, what do you think that we could be doing more for people to really get the training that they need to understand our LGBTQIA plus seniors? Well, I'll say that training is a, is a part of the bill so that um, that is a part of the required training for long-term care facility staff in California. I'll just make a broader point about quality of care in, in nursing facilities, um, just in relationship to all t- aspects of, of care. Um, so this is advice, as it, as it were, to, to residents and, and family members of residents. And that I think folks... Um, have to have to push that, that you, you really have to be an informed and a, an aggressive, politely aggressive maybe, but aggressive con, consumer, um, because um, in, in my mind the ongoing problems are um, largely cultural. You've, you've got decades maybe of nursing facilities treating their customers to a certain extent like a captive market, and. Um, and people accepting it to it. I mean, I'm not. I'm not pointing figure. I don't want to blame the blame the victims here, but um, just sort of um, shrugging their shoulders and assuming that there's there's nothing to be done. And um, you know, so I'll maybe twist the question a little bit. You know, I think there's an education for staff. There's also a real need to educate everybody, like consumers, regarding nursing facilities as well. So you don't just. It, take this mediocre care and say, well, I guess that's it. But instead for people to think, no, that's, that is not okay. That what I'm getting here, um, these folks are getting paid 
serious money monthly, right? Seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars a a month, um, either out of my pocket or out, you know, or out of Medicare or, or Medicaid. I should be getting something for that. I should. This is the. Uh, I should be getting this kind of extensive assistance for that kind of money. And I, I, I can't let the facility tell me, oh, I'm sorry, um, we're a little short-staffed today, or I'm sorry, we don't usually do that. Um, so there, definitely there's, there has to be tr- training for staff, but I think all of us need to, um, to, to aggressively demand what people sh- should, be, should be getting and be as aggressive about our long-term care as and, and as educated ourselves as we may be about any other kind of consumer project, automobiles or televisions or or or, or who knows what, because it's, it's probably the kind of nursing facility care we get is probably more important than the quality of our of our television or or um, or something else. Eric, could I ask a question? Of course. Um, do you think for profit is a big part of the problem? For profit in medicine. That's certainly a, a big picture question. There, there are studies out there. I'll cite um, Charlene Harrington, who um, is emeritus at the nursing school at UCSF, and, and others who have written, who've, who've written, done studies, and and uh, that generally show that the nonprofit facilities do better than the than the for profits. So in. And by and large, the the research that's been done suggests that that the nonprofits do better, and I think that's consistent with what I just said because the nonprofits, in general, right? Like Kathleen said, there, there's a lot of there's good people out there, and and and, and not so good people as well. So um, these are you're you're playing the percentage here rather than saying absolutes that this is better than than that. But um, it's about culture, and in general. I guess I work for a nonprofit that you like to think that nonprofits um, have a more of a sense of mission and that that is important. So in, in, in general, yes. But I also say that I don't think we're going to, um, you know, for at least the near term for profits are part of the landscape. And um, I think as, as consumers and other folks, we're going to have to, um, to, to know how to deal with them. Um, and, and maybe choose nonprofits when we have a choice. That's certainly a, a legitimate option and a, and a consideration. Um, but um, but I think also that you know what there's going to be a lot of people being cared for in the near, near term and medium medium term certainly by for profit organizations and, and consumers. We've got to be prepared to to deal with those entities and to advocate for the care that folks are entitled to. Kathleen, anything to add? Well, I think specifically on the training, you know, Open House has been um, working with nursing homes and other long-term care providers for many years. Um, uh, And we have a training and transformation program um, that we bring to facilities and, um, and really train the staff on how to work in a more humble, competent way with LGBT older adults. And certainly nationally, SAGE has been a leader in providing those types of trainings um, across the country. I think that, you know, when we do our trainings, what we really look for is, and Rochelle, you brought this up a little bit, is what's the difference between my intent as a provider versus the impact of my words or actions? And when we do trainings, we always are really um, 
asking people to think about what is the um, what is the impact of your language, for instance, which is a behavior, and how is that either opening the door for your resident, your patient, your client to really um, feel embraced in that environment so that the care can be optimized as opposed to either closing off, shutting down, or coming once and then never coming back again. And I think when I when I learned of this court case, the, the fear that first came to me was there are going to be some transgender elders living in long-term care settings in California who are going to delay care. The care is literally in their home, but out of fear, out of not feeling safe, and out of being bullied, which I think is a harm, there potentially are going to be people who are no longer going to be getting that type of care that they need, or the care won't be as optimal as it could be. So training is definitely a big piece of what we do. So I think Rochelle had something that she wanted to add. Well, actually, I was just going to you know, ask you, Rochelle, to, you know, I, I think when we sat in our planning conversation, you had shared with us some some personal stories. And I don't know, you know, are the, the, the judges, whoever made this decision or the people right. who are complaining, like, what do they need to understand? What do they need to connect with? And maybe share with us, you know, what the experience is like for you when you are misgendered. Well, um, I've been in both sides of it. Um, uh, last week, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a veteran. I, I'm a, and I get my services from the VA and they sent me for electrolysis to the Berman Skin Institute in San Francisco. And I walk in and there's a line of, um, perfect white blonde rich women <laughs> and then i turn to the to the reception desk and i'm filling out paperwork and then i ask for the restroom key and the woman hands me a key that says men on it and i looked at her and i said i am offended and she was and i i have I just feel strongly that was that was intended. And then I went from there over to get my um COVID booster at Walgreens and the woman at the I'm in a at the first I've gone through this whole line and there's a long line behind me a lot of people listening she's going, "Oh, your Walgreens discount card says Richard." And it says Rochelle. And she's <laughs> And so I say, <laughs> it's because I used to be a man, okay? That's what I had to do to get my COVID booster, was to get um, that um, wound to the psyche. Mm. That's what misgendering is. It's a wound to the psyche. So, um, I, I mean, I, I could... I could tell stories like that till the cows come home, but they would just illustrate kind of what I've been saying. Um, You know, I've been misgendered by healthcare personnel in hospitals, in clinics. Um, It's part of my mission to to not allow that to stand and correct them every time. 
if I don't correct them, I'm not I'm not helping. Is if they do, if they, you know, maybe maybe it was I'm the first transgender woman they ever encountered. That could be, Heart, not likely in San Francisco, but it could be. And so I, I give them a little bit of doubt about that, but I, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired. Yeah. And we we feel exhausted. I mean, this is one of many cases in which we feel attacked, we as in the LGBTQIA plus community, but especially the transgender community as we um, you know, become aware of so many efforts to put laws in place to discriminate against the transgender community. And so let's turn our attention to the status of this case. Obviously, you know, leaders in our community are outraged. Um, I believe that, you know, I'd read that Equality California had planned to appeal. I'm not sure if, if that has actually happened. Tell us what's going on with the case now. Um, Eric, would you like to start? Yeah, what I th- think I'd like to do first is just to explain the decision a little bit, and then we can talk about what the what the status is. So we started at the beginning of the conversation talking about this nonprofit taking offense that filed a lawsuit against the state of California. So the state of California is the defendant. They're, they're defending the, the, the state law. And um, this brought in trial court in, in Sacramento and in the trial court, the state won. So the challenge failed in the trial court. And then it went to the court of appeal and um, I'll try not to take too much time here, but I just want to mention the 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 two the two particular provisions here. So the 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 case challenged two particular provisions. One, I'm gonna sorry, I'm gonna read this for a second to make sure I get the language straight. Um, one of the, in this the right is when rooms are assigned by gender, that is a violation to um, ref, to um, to reassign or refusing to assign a room to a transgender resident other than in accordance with the transgender resident's gender identity. So that's that's the one provision that was challenged. And then the other provision that was challenged, and that's the one that we've been talking about today, is a provision that um, prohibits the facility staff from willfully and repeatedly failing to use a resident's preferred name or pronouns after being clearly informed of the preferred name or, or pronoun. So those are the two provisions that were challenged. The Court of Appeal um, rejected the challenge to the room assignment um, provision. So in, in that case, the, the, the plaintiffs lost. Um, and then in, in relationship to this pronoun provision, the court concluded that this was a this, this particular one was a free speech challenge. Concluded that the that the um, law related to the content of the speech. It wasn't just a time, place, or, or manner. It was about the the, the, the speech, the, the content. Um, did find that the state had a compelling interest in um, in protecting the rights of um, LGBT and transgender residents of long-term care facilities found that that was, was com- a compelling reason for the, the state to, per- to, to enact this, this protection, but found that the, um, the means that the state took were, um, were not narrowly tailored to the problem because the, 
under under certain circumstances, this could be a misdemeanor. So, uh, you know, in general, it wouldn't be. But if uh, looking at the state law, if you know, a violation of this could be a violation of this could be a violation of this, and um, under you know, really rare circumstances, based on the California statute, it would be a misdemeanor. So the 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 court found that that was um, excessive or not narrowly tailored in the um, in the verbiage of uh, this First Amendment analysis. So um, the state appealed. So the, 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 it's the state's case, and they filed an appeal uh, a few weeks ago, or requested review, rather, by the California Supreme Court. There's not a, a right to appeal. It's a, it's, it's, it's a matter of making a petition, and the California Supreme Court um, decides whether or not to to um, to grant the petition and, and hear the case, and um, and that is pending at this point. Anything to add, Kathleen Rochelle? Well, I mean, I would just say that Eric um, was the lawyer who um, helped to really call together a large number of organizations, including um, the California Commission on Aging and Sage and. Um, open house as well as justice and aging. And we just, we did an amicus brief. He, he did, I can't take credit for what he did, Um, but an amicus brief to the court supporting the AG's, um, uh, the AG's request for review. And so we're sort of in a holding pattern right now. Um, I think though it does speak broader too. And it's a question that you asked, like, what do these justices need to hear? What do they, what, how do we humanize the experience and demonstrate that this is very harmful? And Rochelle just shared a couple of examples of us of what, um, what harm can befell uh, a transgender elder just in the course of life, just going to Walgreens to get your booster shot, um, going to a clinic. So in the places where we would think, we would be most safe, that the care would be most sensitive. It unfortunately, um, the Third Circuit Court ruled, it can be insensitive. It can be harmful. And, um, you know, I think one thing, several years ago, um, Karen Fredrickson Goldson, who's, you know, really the preeminent researcher on aging of the LGBT community, did a study here in San Francisco and found that 46% of LGBTQ elders in San Francisco had at one point had suicidal ideation, and that that figure was much higher for transgender uh, elders. And so I just think we're, you know, the deck is constantly stacked against our transgender older Californians. And so I feel like this is a group of Californians that needs more care, needs more thoughtfulness um, brought to care, not less, and certainly not the mean-spirited misgendering or dead naming of that person. Mm-hmm. Just off the cuff, but, you know, misgendering a transgender person, it's harmful, it's harassment, as we have been saying, it can lead to the death of an individual. Um, Rochelle had said it, you know, it's a wound to the psyche, to the heart, but yet would it kill someone to respect another human being? 
I, I don't know. I would ask, I would ask the, I would ask the judge that question. We're talking about life or death. Well, that there's, that there's something really old that applies here. And that's a Hippocratic oath. First, do no harm. First, do no harm. It's simple and profound. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Misgendering yeah. is not healing. Yeah, I want to quote uh, quickly a section. I, I think the um, may arguably the the portion of the um, court of appeals decision that's the the most suspect is a, a, a little section here that I think does trivialize this misgendering. Um, it says the law criminalizes even occasional isolated offhand instances of willful misgendering, provided there has been at least one prior instance without requiring that such occasional instances of misgendering amount to harassing or discriminatory conduct. So you know, the sense of it is, well, you know, no big, no big deal. That that's my informal translation of, of, of that. And and that I think is the, is, is, is one of the, like I said, the, the suspect portions of the, of the analysis, because you know, it, the language that I, um, sorry, I'll, I'll quote something again, just to get it right. That um, this was the the law itself. There's only a violation with um, when a when a staff person willfully and repeatedly fails to use a resident's preferred name or pronouns after being clearly informed of the preferred name or pronouns. So there, the court of appeal in in the discussing it suggests that well, you know, you just make it. It's an honest mistake. These things happen. Why? What's the problem here? But the the language of the law itself is much more rigorous than that and only um, establishes a violation if there's this willful and repeated failure despite being clearly informed. Mm -hmm. Eric, can you take us a step further? And I know we're in a holding pattern, but hypothetically, what decisions can be made? And then if say, you know, it went one way or another, what would happen? Uh, Can we amend you know, the decision or can the language that you've been quoting, can that be amended? If the legislature wanted to take another look at this, I, I think if you'd look at the court of appeal decision and see that the court of appeal decision, as I mentioned, focused heavily on this potential misdemeanor violation, right? Which the, in the, the court of appeal says repeatedly that it, that this, law imposes crim potentially at least imposes criminal penalties for violations and compares it to some other provisions of civil rights law that have uh, um, enforce uh, civil enforcement mechanisms rather than rather than criminal penalties and, and so if you look at the court of appeal decision you can imagine a um, amendment of this that would dial back. And, and again, I think in real life, the criminal enforcement of this is mostly hypothetical. It, it, you know, it, nursing facility violations don't, except in very rare instances, don't put staff members in jail. They don't end up in critical criminal court. They're, they're deficiencies issued by the, by the inspectors from the de- Department of, of Public Health. Um, and, and, in, and in more extreme circumstances, monetary penalties 
assessed against the facility licensees. So the shorter answer is I, I th- if the legislature legislature wanted to address this, I think that's where you look because I'll give some credit to the court of appeal here. They, they did recognize this as a compelling interest. So they, they didn't deny that this was an important issue and that the state didn't, you know, didn't have a compelling reason to legislate in this area, just found that the, as I said, that the, the remedies that were chosen by the legislature were not quote unquote narrowly tailored to address the problem, given that there was this um, limitation, content-based restriction on, on speech. Kathleen, anything to add, especially around, you know, the, the legislation portion of it? Well, I, you know, it, Eric knows much better than I do. I mean, I, uh, my understanding is that um, Senator Weiner, you know, he's a very smart man and that he has looked at what types of amendments he could make to the legislation. Um, in terms of what happens at the court level, that is something that I'm not sure. So what's the next step for the um, the state Supreme Court and um, the AG's request? Um, that would be much more, again, in Eric's Eric's ball court. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I was going with, I mean, we have friends in California and, and uh, you know, supporters and allies and members of our own community, you know, who are part of the legislative decision. But while we're in this holding pattern, you know, what can we, what kind of uh, advice or recommendations or suggestions we can give out there to our transgender elders who are in nursing care facilities, um, especially around, you know, our own agency, our own power and what to do while we're in this holding pattern, what to maybe some words to remember by that. Yeah, you do have support out there. So we'll start with Kathleen. Well, you know, certainly if you're in San Francisco, you have enhanced rights Um, and uh, open house uh, along with the department of aging services um, actually did a um, a pamphlet um, on bill of rights and Eric's organization has done um, a Bill of Rights for um, nursing home residents. Uh, not a Bill of Rights, excuse me, but um, uh, what you can do to solve some issues that you have. I think that what I would say is, you know, I want to first acknowledge that sometimes it's very difficult um, and challenging for people in a nursing home or long-term care setting to feel safe enough to advocate for themselves. Um, but you do have the right to um, a telephone. You do have a right to privacy. Um, and if you need help, there are certainly organizations like Justice and Aging or Open House, sort of Los Angeles LGBT Center, Equality California, um, SAGE nationally, that people could get in touch with either by the phone or via email um, on the web. And, um, you know, I think having the stories out there is important, but also reaching out and not feeling isolated. I think abuse escalates when people are isolated. And so if we can shine the light on these few instances that might be happening in the state, we can really, that light is oftentimes um, very cleansing. And there are organizations that certainly will partner with individuals um, to help them to shine the light on what the issues are. So if people wanted to get in touch with us, they can certainly go to openhousesf.org and we'd be more than happy to help and refer people um, perhaps for legal aid or um, or actually maybe we just need to call the facility and, and say, we think 
you're you're appropriate for us to come in and do a transformation training um, with you. Kathleen, can you save a room for me? Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Eric? Yeah, the, the, I do think it's um, important to to work on both fronts. And, and I think you got to balance pessimism with optimism. I think you can look at this decision and, and say that it's it's really troubling, and um, you know the, the Supreme Court will decide whether to whether to hear it or not, to whether to accept the petition sometime in the next few months, and, and we can be really concerned about that. But then simultaneously, we want to be able to say that the the majority, the vast majority of the LGBT residents' Bill of Rights remains in effect. Uh, the the room assignment provi- provision that I mentioned, a, a provision that prohibits discrimination on admission or in use of restrooms. I'm I'm looking at the provision relating to the the clothes that people wear. All of those and the the training requirement that I that I mentioned earlier remain entirely in effect. So um, if you're a resident, or you know if if you're dealing with a long-term care facility, your attitude should not, should not, should not be, well, it's, it's, it's done now. It should be entirely the opposite, which is um, there's this, this, this really strong state law out there, um, you know, that, that people in other states are looking at and saying, good for California, right? That's a really, that's a, that's a positive thing. And, and that's there. Um, the, um, if there are problems, you can people can make complaints with the Department of Public Health, which will send inspectors in. The long-term care ombudsman program is available to assist people. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't plug our own publication, so I'll do that. That um, Justice in Aging <clears throat> has a guide called 25 Common Nursing Home Problems and How to Resolve Them that's available for free at justiceinaging.com. Dot org that 25 most common problems, right? It, it, relating to eviction, relating to quality of care, relating to visitation that, that gives um, step-by-step advice on how to, how to deal with it. And then just really briefly here, just broadly people, I've said this in different ways a couple of times already, but people do need to be aggressive consumers. You hear a lot of falsehoods from nursing facility staff, maybe not intentional falsehoods, but yeah, it's just the way they've always done things. And they'll say things like, well, I'm sorry, you're on Medi-Cal. You don't get that, which is wrong. And um, our guide calls that out. And it's, it's extremely important for people in nursing facilities and those who are helping them to know the actual state of the law and not to accept some, some tired excuses from facility staff. Thank you. And I want to cue John Zipper to come back on screen. He's got some questions for you from our audience, but Rochelle uh, would love to hear your thoughts on, on that question, which is maybe some, you know, words of advice, some supportive words out there for our transgender elders who are in care facilities. I, you know, the tragedy is them going back in the closet because they're afraid of being misgendered and harassed by other nursing staff, by, by nursing staff and residents. But the, the key, I think, is to be vocal, um, to tell family, and to be lucky. 
Because, um, you know, it's a, it's a crapshoot. Um, a, a nursing home that looks great on the outside that has well-manicured uh, well lawn may, may have incredible deficiencies in the laundry room. So um, you need to pay attention and, um, and be vocal about what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, let me um, agree with Rochelle there. I, I think it, it brings up a broad point is that it's good to be vocal. And um, Rochelle talked about going back in the in the closet. And it's, it's a variation on that, I think, is, um, is common among nursing facility residents to say, well, you know, maybe I'm better off if I just stay quiet, right? I don't want to. I don't want to make any trouble, or there's nothing, or just be negative. Well, there's nothing I can do about it anyway, so um, I might as well just turtle up a bit and try to ride this out. Um, and I would suggest that that's the wrong um, approach. And, and the response to that is all well, easy to you to say you're just some lawyer who's not living in a nursing facility. And I get that. I, you know, I, when I did direct service, I I, I would be really upfront with that. I get, I get it when I'm talking to people. I, I know I'm not living in a nursing facility, so it's easy for me to say that. But I've when I did direct service, I represented um, hundreds of people, thousands, you know, a big number. And um, in that representation, I can, I can say that people did better. You do better by speaking up than you do by trying to be quiet and thinking that it's going to be better if, if you're just really docile i mean again i'm not saying that you need to to be raucous and and disruptive the aggressive in in whatever way works for you whatever your personality is but the the point is you do not you do not want to be a doormat that's not in your interest and um and again you shouldn't have to apologize. People are so apologetic in these situations, like the nursing facilities doing them some kind of huge favor if they accommodate them. No, this facility is getting paid serious, serious money. And, you know, this should be when, you know, in our lives, we're thinking, when when are people going to take care of us? Well, if I'm paying somebody $10,000 a month, they're going to take care of me. They really should. And that's the kind of attention that people should be getting in nursing facilities. They shouldn't be embarrassed to ask for it because these folks are getting paid to provide that level of assistance. They're not doing you a favor. They're getting paid serious money and they should be doing it. Not to give anyone ideas, but I had pictured in my mind when you said you don't need to be docile, um, transgender elders throwing a, a pride protest at a care facility. Again, not giving anybody ideas. Anyway, John, John's got some questions. Yes. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Uh, we have an audience question. Uh, someone says, um, in my assisted living facility, we receive a weekly visit from an ombudsman. How common is this and how effective can this ombudsperson be in these situations? Sure. First, I'll mention that assisted living is included in the long-term care facilities that are covered by the LGBT Residence Bill of Rights. Um, assisted living... You know, Assisted living are called residential care facilities for the elderly in the state of California. So everything, just about every, a lot of what we said here applies to these facilities as well in relationship to the LGBT residents bill of rights. I mentioned the ombudsman a couple minutes ago. I think the long-term care ombudsman program is, 
is terrific. It's gonna the quality is gonna vary with the particular ombudsman or maybe the particular county that you're in. The ombudsmen are funded by the by the federal government, and then by the California De- Department of Aging, which administers the program. And these are um, resident advocates that that are there to talk and talk with and counsel residents in a variety of ways. They are not inspectors. They, they don't have the authority to assess fines, but they can represent the residents interests. Um, and if they're there in the facility weekly, that's actually a, a regular, a more regular than I think is, is, is common. That's, that's someone who's maybe going the extra extra mile to, to maintain contacts in the, in the facility. So they're, they're definitely um, a real, a real resource for, for residents. Great. Uh, Rochelle, you mentioned uh, your work, your experience working in uh, nursing facilities. Are there many transgendered staff people in, in nursing facilities and seniors facilities? And if so, do you think that could help change or transform the uh, culture? Well, there is there is many LGBTQ in nursing facilities as there is in the general population. We all age at the same rate, and so um, uh, they're just in hiding. I think. I think many transgenders go back in the closet. Um, LGBT, LGBTQ go back in the closet. I never ran in. I, I never had a patient who was out. And um, I mean, this this was a long time ago, um, the nineteen the mid nineteen seventies, uh, when when everybody was in the closet. Well, not everybody, a lot of people, me included. Um, and what about? Well, actually, so again, probably then you're talking about the staff as well as the patients. Um, do we know? Has there been? Uh, an increase in number of LGBTQ uh, staff in these or in these facilities in in the ensuing decades. Well, uh, there was when I was working because of me. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Does anybody else know? I don't think there's any way to really know that um, statistic is who's working in the facility itself. Um, what I do know is that LGBTQ older adults have consistently said they would. Uh, go to a facility earlier and seek care earlier if they were assured that the community they were going to was either LGBT supportive or had LGBTQ staff. And at Open House, our staff is from the community. um, And that includes our uh, Community Day Service Center, uh, which is in partnership with Onlock. Kathleen, let me stick with you then. Uh, Question, uh, what are some resources for people who are looking, you know, they're either for themselves or for family members looking for a senior facility and want to know, okay, is this going to be an accepting place? Are they going to face harassment? What's their record? What's their culture? What can people do? Yeah, that's a great question. So it depends on what part of the state you're in. Um, Certainly, if you're in the LA County area, the Los Angeles LGBT Center does a lot of training. So they would be a great resource for you to know what what um, facilities have they gone and, and done trainings at? And here in the greater Bay Area, that would be um, open house. I think that looking for um, support services, though, in California is a little different. And it's different for this reason. California is way ahead of many other states across the country. So calling your local ADRC 
connecting with your local senior center, you're more likely to be referred to open and affirming um, support services and facilities than if you were in a different state. So we're very lucky in that respect. Um, It certainly isn't perfect and we have a ways to go, but at least California has for many, many years had the intention of ensuring that LGBTQ older adults will feel safe and accepted in those long-term care settings. Great. Uh, an audience question for uh, Eric, I think. And and this question is about whether and how and if the law can compel speech. And if that was an issue with, with this case, that it was not just maybe preventing, but actually compelling you to describe someone in a certain way that maybe you didn't want to. Is there any, I I guess I'm really, they're kind of getting to the the legal technicalities of that. Is that what this was based on? Yeah, in part. First, a disclaimer. I'm a a long-term care facility, a Medicaid expert, not a First Amendment expert. So, so I don't want to get get ahead of myself too much here. But yeah, that was, it's a content-based restriction, you know, according to the Court of Appeal, this 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 was um, regulating what people say, um, and and one of the defenses was actually from from the state, which the court didn't buy, was well you're you're not forced to say anything. You could just avoid the use of pronouns entirely, and then you wouldn't then you wouldn't be forced to say anything. But the the court didn't 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 buy that argument, and still found that this was a, a this was a content restriction on on speech. That, yeah. I, to, to answer the question more concisely, I guess the answer would be yes. That this, this, you're, you're um, from the analysis of the court of appeal, that people are being forced to say certain things or not say certain things. And what was the, I guess, burden of proof? Or I mean, was there? Uh, I mean, was this something like this needed to be witnessed by someone else, or would the resident's own reporting of this violation have been enough? That not that wasn't really um, an issue here. This was an abstract question. Like I said, there wasn't a specific um, incident. Right? It was it was somebody coming in preemptively, as it were, saying we're concerned about enforcement of this. So it, it because you didn't have facts, you didn't have a real person or a real incident. There was no consideration of of evidence or proof or or, any, or anything else. Okay, we've also had some audience members who are talking about uh, transferring to another facility. And and I guess this kind of gets to, is that possible? Is it easy? Is it difficult? What are the challenges if someone is in a situation where they're just like, I have to get out of here? So can anyone address that? Yeah, you just leave. That um it's a it's a business relationship and 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 you're you're staying someplace and you're paying or someone on your behalf is paying. And if you decide you want to go someplace else, you, you just go. And so there, there's, they can't, can't keep you there. The, the challenge is just finding a, another place. There's a certain amount of inertia once you're in a, a nursing facility about going and moving someplace else, but you're always, you're always free to leave. And I think I would just add to that, John, that, you know, oftentimes that's where a case manager, for instance, can be very helpful from a local nonprofit um, or um, even the the AAA in your community, the Area Agency on Aging, to help navigate where is the next place 
that you can go, where would be a better choice for people, but you absolutely have the right to leave at any time. Okay. And Kathleen, you had talked about training of staff. Is staff turnover an issue? Is it, do, do, I mean, is this, there are certain positions, of course, in, in, in the, the economy where staff turnover is fat, is heavy. And so you, you know, you have kind of a constant training treadmill that you're on. What's it like in this industry? Well, yes, that is absolutely an issue, I think, in many um, long-term care settings. And there's a host of reasons why that is. Our training and transformation is really meant to um, create a new culture within a community, so within a facility, so that, yes, the staff, there might be some staff turnover, and we are very consistent about um, going back and doing trainings um, every year. Um, and sometimes it's several times a year with different facilities. But what we really want to do is create the culture. And so that's incredibly important um, to really start at the top. Who is the executive director of that facility? Who are the other administrative staff? People who perhaps are not on the front line. So their jobs are ones that there isn't as much staff turnover and just creating a new culture. And I think beyond the staff turnover, um, the other issue that we deal with is how do we work with the other residents so then the other residents don't become bullies um, within the facility itself? And so these are long conversations because there's a lot of culture change that needs to happen. However, we've been very successful at working with um, organizations to do that, and we're always happy to partner with groups. Okay, and, and maybe a final question from the audience and me, and then I'll turn it back to Michelle. Um, if this law is not upheld on appeal or, 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 or this, this uh, well, I guess that would be the only other option on that, on that, that, that angle. Um, what would be the next steps? I mean, what, what can be done or what is being done? What's being proposed? Um, what, where are we at that point? So again, the, the California Court of Appeal will either take it or they won't. And if they don't accept it for review, so if they take it, then they, it, it could go either way at that point. They'd, they'd, they'd get briefing, take argument, and rule in a way that we can't predict right now. We'd have to, we'd have to see the decision. Before. But assuming they don't take it, um, I think then we have this um, – go back to the discussion we had a few minutes ago about potentially amending the law that I think in a way that could pass muster. That would certainly be, be one – possibility and then i'll go back to the other point that i made previously is that there's a the the, the vast majority of the lgbt bill of rights maintain um, remains in effect and and so um there's there's all sorts of protections there and all the work that we're talking about doing we just continue to to, to need to do and all the you know the organizing and education that, that Kathleen is talking about all, all that work is just incredibly important and, and needs and will needs to go forward and will go forward regardless of what the California Supreme Court does. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Eric, is it then will it be time for uh, pitchforks and torches? <laughs> well, it's not in my department really. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna but but I will say it, it, I, 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 I talked about you know, maybe politely taking up pitchforks, right? What did we, did we, did we, you're always fighting, right? You're always fighting, and and I think that's incredibly important at all, at all levels, at the legislative level, um, at the facility level, um, 
and the kind of culture change that Kathleen is talking about that. So it's, it's, that's the education that you do need to do to support that level of, of engagement. All of that is, is, um, really important. And, and whether people are of a pitchfork mentality or s- something slightly more nuanced, you know, that's, that's up to them. But, um, the, you, but, the it's incredibly important to, um, to empower people or to empower ourselves and to, to keep pushing and it's a balance. I know some of the the theme of this program might be, oh, this is a bad decision. That's not good. Um, but you want the mess. You know, part of the message needs to be um, we got need to keep moving and also not to um, not to overlook some of the some of the good things that are there as as well. And um, and that's the balance. Some mixing concern with optimism and and organizing and enthusiasm all those things pushing it forward in in ways that um, protect people and benefit the community those are great words to end the program with and you know we're all here for you we've got a great community let's keep fighting um just very quick take 30 seconds and tell our audience where they can find you if they want to support you want to support your organization uh, and or your work or follow the case We'll start with Eric and then Kathleen and then Rochelle. Sure. I'm an attorney for justice and aging. We're a nonprofit. I should say we don't do direct services. We're, we're a national organization that does public policy on the California level and at the federal level, justiceandaging.org. Really simple. And there's a way, if you're interested in signing up for the alerts, federal alerts, healthcare alerts, income-related alerts, um, that's available the sign-up opportunities are available on our website. And I'm, I work for Open House um, in San Francisco. We're a nonprofit that is a service provider. Um, so we provide program services um, as well as partner with um, Mercy Housing to develop affordable housing um, that is safe space for LGBTQ older adults. And you can find us at openhousesf.org. Um, we're happy to send out our newsletter to folks. Um, we generally have 50 to 60 different types of programs and activities that people can get involved in each month. And then also have housing navigation, care navigation, and case management um, on site as well. Uh, I'm Rochelle, and you can reach me at R S L O T A, that's R Slota, Slota, at SBCglobal.net. I'm retired, but I also I'm also co-chair of the Behavioral Health Commission of San Francisco, and that keeps me busy. Um, and uh, I'm a writer, and I'm always working on my writing. You can find my books on Amazon. That's so great. Thank you to our speakers again, Eric Carlson, Rochelle Sloda, and Dr. Kathleen Sullivan. Thank you for joining us. Back to you, John. Thank you again to our special guests on this Michelle Miao show at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thanks to Open House San Francisco, which partnered with us on this program. And last but not least, thanks to all of you watching or listening to this program. You can find more at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe and have a good weekend. Goodbye.